1: The Kitchen Sisters started working together on a live local radio show in California back in the late 1970s. Since then, Nikki Silver and Davia Nelson have made about 500 audio documentaries together, covering topics from space food to Spanish shepherds, from kimchi to the recording of Prince's album Purple Rain. Their works appeared all over the world, including on the US Public Broadcasting Service NPR, the BBC, the ABC in Australia, RNZ, and more recently on the Radiotopia podcasting network. And over the decades, they've refined a distinctive style. It's audio-rich, full of found sounds, voicemail messages and music. It's mainly recorded in the field, not in the studio. And there's not much of them in their stories. I'll speak to Davia Nelson in just a minute, but first, here's a couple of her favourite kitchen sister's stories to share. This is Operation Hummus, the cultural and political battle over the origins of a simple chickpea dish.
2: My name is Fadi Aboud, born in Lebanon. I served as Minister for Tourism. I am the one who led Lebanon to break the Guinness Book of Records by making the largest tub of hummus in the world. We want the whole world to know that hummus and tabouli are Lebanese. At the time, a group of us came from a food exhibition in France. Suddenly, they were telling us, hummus is an Israeli traditional dish. I mean, you know, the world now thinks that Israel invented hummus. I was rather upset, you know, and I thought the best way to tell the world that hummus is Lebanese is to break the Guinness Book of Records. It was a big issue
3: all over the news that hummus only Lebanese. They say, no, hummus for everybody. My name is Jawadat Ibrahim. We're in Abu Ghosh restaurant in Abu Ghosh village between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. I came with the idea, we're going to broke a Guinness World Record.
0: In the
2: town of Abu Ghosh this morning, Israel retook the title for the world's largest hummus dish weighing four tons, scooped into a satellite dish.
3: media came here and over 50 TV channels all over the world, more than Obama visiting any country.
1: The Lebanese, they're already planning a counter-attack.
4: We call it the Hummus Wars, when Lebanon accused the Israeli people of trying to steal the hummus and make it their national dish. Hummus became a symbol. My name is Ronit Vered. I'm a food journalist about the culture of food here in Israel. I live in Tel Aviv. In Israel, we don't have a strong food tradition. This place only exists 60 years. You don't have specific dishes which can be common ground for all the Israelis. So hummus became a common ground. Palestinians also made hummus, the symbol that we didn't only take their lands, we take their food as well and make it ours. The
5: hummus is ours. They take our hummus and they make it their tradition. My name is Noha Musleh, and I'm a Palestinian. I work with journalists. I'm a fixer. People run to get hummus when they're in Ramallah. It's like getting a good pizza downtown Rome or getting a good a T-bone steak in Texas. I imagine. I haven't been.
2: <laughs>
5: the restaurant owner, he says, what distinguishes any hummus is nafs, which means soul in Arabic. They pound it, they pound it. You use good tahini. Sesame seed crushed sumak. Lemons from Jericho. Palestinians don't mind that Lebanon is proud of its hummus. It puts Arabs together.
2: The actual name hummus comes from the Arabic for chickpea. Lebanon wanted to register hummus with the European Union for Lebanon in the way of champagne, parmesan, like the Greeks did with feta cheese. My name is Ari Ariel, author of the article The Hummus Wars.
5: The Association of Lebanese Industrialists started a campaign called Hands Off Our Dishes. The problem from the Lebanese perspective was that there were
2: these Israeli companies that were selling most of the hummus in the world. We were not successful in registering hummus for Lebanon.
4: In the first two decades of the state, the Israeli people didn't really eat local food. they stacked with the thing that is close to your heart. It's also a political issue. If I eat Palestinian food in a way, I acknowledge the fact that they exist. In the
5: 1950s, the Israeli army started serving hummus in mess halls, and the average Israeli came to consider it an everyday food. These foods become more familiar, kind of hip, something young people will eat. My name is Daphna Hirsch, faculty member at the Open University of Israel. Homus is appropriated as the food of the new Sabra, the new Israeli man who is rooted in the land.
2: <laughs> in
5: Israel, hummus is considered masculine dish. It's considered a kind of masculine ritual to go, you know, group of men to the homosiyah and eating hummus wiping this, you know, large, circular gestures. Hummus, unfortunately, has become like in the category of fast foods, but actually, in the Arab and all of Palestine, hummus is Friday, honourable breakfast. The father wakes up in the morning, makes hummus, invites all his daughters, his sons, It's a way to get together in the morning of a Friday when the family wants to throw all their worries and problems away.
2: My name is David Varon from uh, Tel Aviv, and I'm a taxi driver.
0: What does your tattoo say?
2: No fear. Some people are afraid to live in a country where there is so much blood and uh, wars and conflict of thousands of years. This conflict is about religion, and it will not be over until religion will be over. Hummus, falafel, this is maybe the only thing that gets people to sit together with different thoughts to eat the same food.
5: This kind of approach which says, oh, you know, if we eat hummus together, then peace will come through the stomach and all that. But no, I mean, as long as occupation continues, then hummus is not going to solve it. You can see it's quite a crowd,
0: thousands of people gathered around, the hummus
3: has been made... A- we broke the Guinness World Record, 2010. But to make the hummus is not the issue. To put things together, is the main thing. People talking about blood and killing, and I want to take it to a different way. People can talk about the Middle East, nice things. That's just killing and shooting. Hummus. Nobody gets hurt with this world.
1: Operation Hummus. And here's another Kitchen Sisters story for you. This one's set in Jamaica and it's called Chicken Pills. <laughs>
5: Some girls, to be more attractive to the male, they get themselves into this use of chicken pills. I'm Carol Turpin, St. Catherine, Jamaica.
3: Chicken pills are the same pills that you give to the chicken to make them grow faster. Some people use it if you want to get broader hips or bigger bottom. My name is Jason Turpin. I'm a college student from Kingston. In our Jamaican culture, you know, we, we love a girl that has well, a lot a shape.
5: Most males, they love to see women with big bottoms. The whole idea for cocoa, uh, cola bottle yeah, shape.
3: When, when, when they're talking about a, a cocoa bottle shape, it's like more heavier down on the hips.
5: I don't want a marga woman. That's how the men would speak. You say, mega, we say marga. They're figuring that if you look maga, you look poor and um, poor in the sense of you're not being taken care of.
4: I need fat girl. If you have a big bottom, that means that you're sitting on a lot of power. I'm Carolyn Cooper, Professor of Literary and Cultural Studies at the University of the West Indies, Mona, Jamaica. In our culture, you get competing norms of beauty. There's a kind of anorexic, Eurocentric model of beauty. Also a much more Afrocentric body type that is valorized. If you have no meat on your bones,
5: the society can't see your wealth, your progress, your being. My name is Sonia Stanley Nile. I am a lecturer in cultural studies at the University of the West Indies.
0: We have these conversations in the culture about conceptions of the ideal body. It's in the music, the dance halls. There's a particular song about the woman whose derriere is of such quality, flexibility, and panache that she can successfully, with vim and vigor, ride the motorbike back. And be a visual spectacle.
2: It is a beautiful sight I'm a love to watch to see the young girl upon the bike back. Bike
4: back. Girl. What I find amazing is the degree to which women will put themselves at risk to fit an image that they consider to be ideal.
5: Action! You got a chicken pill? You can't do that. Try and stop me. My name is Raquel Jones. I'm 21 years old and I'm from Kingston, Jamaica. I was casted to play a lead role in a short film, Chicken Pill. It's about two teenage girls, one getting more attention from the boys in the class. The other character, Lisa, is having self-esteem problems, so she turns to the chicken pill. Oh, here's something to look forward to, Lisa. Diarrhea, rashes. Oh, I'm sure Ronnie
0: will like
2: rashes on those new breasts. And cancer, Lisa. Cancer! I am Dr. Neil Persad Singh, a dermatologist in Kingston, Jamaica. Chicken pills, the harmful ingredient is arsenic. Over the years, I've seen quite a few people who have taken the pill. Mostly women. I think they're a little bit secretive about it. Then they don't want their friends, etc. to know. The government, they've banned the importation of chicken pill. However... The pill is freely available all over the island.
1: Part of Chicken Pills from the Kitchen Sisters there, Nikki Silver and Davia Nelson, and I spoke to Davia from San Francisco, who described their storytelling style.
0: For the most part, we don't narrate and we don't include our questions. Uh, we st- Really early on, like about the third or fourth piece we did together... We just began to eliminate ourselves. We had so much from our interviews and from the music we were gathering and oral histories and archival audio, field recordings, that we just, we didn't make a conscious effort to not be in our pieces. We just had all these elements we wanted people to get to hear that we'd gathered. And also, I think both Nikki and I are very visual. And I I think on some level, we've always felt we were making films that are Microphone is a camera, and we shoot in close-up. And so the more elements, you know, the more we can paint that kind of sonic picture, the more visual our work is, the more archival elements that pull you back in time or the music that just cracks open your soul, that, I would say, is our signature sound. The boat. The daughter.
5: I went to school for Medicures. I worked in this shop almost four years. I came here in 1983 just by myself. About fourteen. I escaped it by boat to Thailand to uh, Philippines and then came here.
0: In terms of our kind of topics in terms of what we are trying to talk about and what matters to us. I I keep seeing that the word lost and hidden and unknown, you know, those are, we have a series called Hidden Kitchens. It's about secret, unexpected, below-the-radar cooking, how communities come together through food. We did a series called The Hidden World of Girls, Girls and the Women They Become, And that was about secret identities and coming of age, rituals and rites of passage. I'd say rituals and traditions and histories is a through line through everything. Voices you don't usually hear on the radio, communities that usually have no access to the media. You know, we're very devoted to trying to chronicle the unchronicled um, and make sure that their voices are part of the national and global conversation. Fancy Nails in Berkeley? Oh, Lisa. This is May Lisa, the owner of the Fancy Nail. Yeah, OK, so I will see you at one thirty. Thank you, bye-bye. When you come to the country here, the easy way to be getting, get a job is going to the nail salon. That's why the population from Vietnam, they all do nail business.
1: How do you find these hidden stories, though? Because that must be part of the challenge if you've got a mainstream narrative telling you a version of history how do you find those hidden or marginalized voices
0: we i think one of our big tenets we sort of have these commandments that we've written for ourselves over the years the 12 commandments but one of them is talk to strangers we just it's really keeping an ear to the ground um for example i don't like to drive that much So for a while, I was taking a lot of taxi cabs. This is uh, back in 2005 or so, when the Hidden Kitchen series was born. And here in San Francisco, where I live, it was Yellow Cab, was one of the big cab companies then, still is. And I would notice that every time I got into a Yellow Cab, the driver was from Brazil. And not just from Brazil, but from the same town in Brazil, Goiânia. And it turned out that 436 drivers for this company were all from the same town in Brazil. And they started to tell me about this woman, Janete, who would come every night at midnight outside on this abandoned industrial street outside the cab yard. And she would set up this little blue tent and she would just start street cooking Brazilian food all night long for the Brazilian cab drivers and not just the Brazilians, the Russians, the Iranians. Everyone would gather on this sort of industrial, forlorn street, and it just turned into this little magic oasis of culture and food. It just sort of opened up our eyes to the hidden kitchens. It has happened with every one of our projects. Once this co- one little moment opens our eyes to who is cooking on your street corner or who are the local kitchen pioneers and visionaries— suddenly everything seems to be a story. And the way we've worked for years, I guess the other through line, Richard, is um, we always open a phone line, and we always open our website, and we invite people to make tips and suggestions and story ideas, and we collaborate with listeners all the time. So we had, um, for example, going back to Hidden Kitchens for a sec, we had 2,789 minutes of phone messages came in when we threw open the Hidden Kitchens hotline, asking people to call in and tell us about the hidden kitchens and endangered traditions in their regions. Message 23 was received at 1.10 p.m. today. I'm Margaret Engel, a woman who works for Legal Aid who's talking to me about how many of her clients get dinner, the people who struggle to even get food on the table because they don't have an official kitchen, and who are using George Foreman grills and the like. The George Foreman Grill has been an amazing success story as a kitchen appliance, but what I think many people don't realize is that immigrants and low-income people have contributed to that popularity. That is, to me, the epitome of the hidden kitchen. But now this whole wing of podcasting has opened up, and it's been beautiful to create new work for the podcast and kind of revisit some of our older stories and lengthen them and add material we always wanted to share with audiences.
1: I was going to ask you about that transition, if you like, from working primarily for radio, for a radio broadcast, and to a radio schedule, and now being part of this podcast network where it seems like you'd have perhaps more creative or artistic freedom to make longer pieces, to introduce more material. How has it changed what you do?
0: You know, when we began on NPR... NPR sounded like a lot like what all these podcasts sound like now. It was very idiosyncratic. It was just inventing itself. It wasn't all that old when we began with it, when we were really young. If you look back at our early work, we have a ton of 20-minute pieces. Even up to Lost and Found Sound, there were a lot of 22-minute pieces that were very exploratory, went down a lot of different paths, opened up a lot of veins. But with news kind of on the rise and things getting more segmented the cultural shows being one thing the news and information becoming another people thinking I don't believe it and I think that podcasting proves it that people's attention spans aren't as short as many in the public radio world think they are these really smaller incremental stories I mean I think there's something great about a three minute and a four minute and a five minute and a six minute stories but not all I think that People all times of day want to go deeper. So podcasting, yeah, did bring us back around to being able to be much more expansive, include much more idiosyncratic material, meander down a path we might not go. You know, often the first thing that bites the dust is humor. You know, someone in the midst of some really serious story tells a joke of some sort or sells an anecdote, and it leavens it or broadens it, and. But when you're on such a hard clock, those or even if people have a repeating style of talking, something really idiosyncratic about their speech that takes a little more time, that gets whacked, too, because you want you're driving the car fast versus having Mm. the time to hear those things that make us so we can all hear what makes each other distinct.
1: Davia Nelson from The Kitchen Sisters. And you can find links to their stories and all the info you'll need to listen to them and subscribe on our website now. That's at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray.
4: And I'm Leah President. And
0: this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect.